Welcome to the High Hopes Phillies Minor League Rundown. I'm Jason Springer here with Jeff Cohen following the journey of the players chasing their dreams in the Phillies farm system. Jeff, last night that journey took the Reading Fightins into the pool in the stadium. Tell us about it. The Reading Fightin' Phils have made the playoffs. So the way that it works is each uh, each half in Double A, there's a winner. So in the first half, it was the Trenton Thunder. Congratulations to them. In the second half, almost in a runaway, was the Reading Fightin' Phils who have really come together as a team. And it was exciting there last night, Mickey Moniak with the game-winning hit. Uh, let's talk about the growth of some of those players. What have you seen from them this season? Just the leadership. Um, to, to me, the four guys that have really been the leaders of this team since the outset of the season um, are Mickey Moniak, who has, has matured immensely, not just physically, but I think as, as a guy who is a leader to a team. You also have Jeff Singer, who started the year uh, an extended spring training, but he's just, he's the balance of a mature leader in the bullpen and a guy who knows when to keep it light. And by the way, when he keeps it light, he keeps it really light. I mean, he's, he's just a fun guy. And then, then you add to that in the starting rotation, probably the rocks since the beginning of the year is David Parkinson, who's just had another solid year. And then you have Derek Hall, who is, you know, he came a couple couple doubles short of the Reading record. He still has a couple games to go, so maybe he sets it, but he has just been a force at first base. And I think that those four guys are really the foundation of this team that has come together and led to this playoff run. I want to ask you about two other players as well, Spencer Howard and Alec Bohm, both what they've done for Reading and the clamor about bringing them up potentially to the majors with the expansion of rosters in September. Uh, I I know it's not you suggesting, so I'm just going to say this. Oh please! No, it's Come you know on, it's people. you know it's not me suggesting, it, but it, I was just it is not I was just year, putting I, on the ball on the tee for you there. No, I can tell you, I've had people walk up to me in my office. I've had I've literally people come up to me like outside of my office who have said, "Why aren't these two guys up in the majors?" Well, first of all, with regard to Spencer Howard, this is pretty simple. He spent part of the year on the disabled list. Okay, you don't want to burn this guy out. And you want to be able to give him the chance to mature. And as we talked about with Cole Irvin at the beginning of the season, there is a massive jump from double A AA to triple A, especially this year, because there's a different ball. So you, you're, you're asking Spencer Howard to, to go to the major leagues and succeed in a playoff hunt with that kind of pressure when he hasn't pitched with the ball that he would be using. And what I mean by that is the seams on the ball are tighter in the major leagues, which means that you don't get as much movement. Which he would and get to he, throw with that ball if he was in AAA, for our listeners. Yeah, but tri- but AAA, the season is over now. Yes. I mean, it's, it's over this weekend. So so he's not going to have an opportunity to do that. So why put him in that position? And I will give you the perfect example of that, which is Damon Jones. We talked to Damon earlier this year when he moved from high A to double A, and he's excelled at both levels, and he struggled at AAA. And I think part of that is because, they're, ridiculously, they're using a different ball. And then with Alec Bohm, this is his first year in professional baseball, first full season. He, he was in college at the beginning of last year. He played a few weeks in um, short season A with Wilmington, I mean, uh, Williamsport. And now he's being, people are saying he's already moved up three levels. Let's move him to the major Jeff, league. I set you off. I'm going to have to have you leave it there because we got to get to our interview with Galen White. Oh, see what happened? You that's, got me going. That's what happens. I got you going. I got mm-hmm. you excited. Let's go to an interview with Galen White, talk about the history of minor league baseball, and we'll be back.
We are here with Galen White, author of Left on Base in the Bush Leagues, Legends, Near Greats, and Unknowns in the Minors. Galen, how are you doing today? Doing great. Thank you so much for joining us, Jeff. I know you're excited about this one, too, as a, a minor league fan and historian yourself over there. I'm loving the idea of having Galen on and talking about his book. Uh, Galen, tell us about how you got started with putting together this book. I grew up in what was at that time a minor league town, Los Angeles. I was born in 1946, and the Dodgers did not come to L.A. until 1958. And when they did, I was one of those who wished they'd go back to Brooklyn because we were quite happy with the minor league teams we had in town. There were the Los Angeles Angels that played at beautiful Wrigley Field there in L.A., and we also had the Hollywood Stars who played over uh, near what is now NBC Studios, and they were owned actually by stars, Hollywood Stars. So we had two outstanding minor league teams, and uh, there were a number of other outstanding players in other cities in the league, San Diego, San Francisco, Oakland, Seattle, and Portland. It was a specific Coast League, Triple A League. And I saw all these guys come through there, uh, through L.A. I saw them at Wrigley Field with my father and my brother. And I wondered, why aren't these guys in the majors? They're that good. In fact, many of them had already been in the majors and were back in the Coast League and did not want to go back up to uh, the big league city. So that uh, made me curious. And later on, as uh, I got became a sports writer, and then after I left sports writing, I uh, started to probing into some of the minor league stars that I knew about personally, and then plus some others that I had heard about. And that led to uh, a lot of research in the 70s. I was in the corporate world, and that kind of bogged me down for a while. And then finally, I finished the book uh, this year. It was released in May. So it's been a life's work. Uh, I started work on it on a Smith Corona electric typewriter to give you an idea how far back we go. You've been working on that one. What's a typewriter? (laughs) (laughs) What's a typewriter? That's a good question. (laughs) Right away, you guys have labeled me as a dinosaur. (laughs) No, never. I I only labeled Jeff that. Don't worry about it. Uh, Yeah. I'm with you. I learned how to type in high school. We we obviously, you know, have followed the minors and know what it's like now, but I was interested reading your book that at the the high point in 1949, there were 59 leagues in 447 towns. Can you talk about about what the miners were like, salaries, players, uh, th- what it was like at that time in baseball? Yes, you had a hierarchy. The highest of the minor leagues was the Pacific Coast League, which was an open classification, although it did not have an open classification until later years. It went on down from Triple uh, A to Double A, Single A, uh, Class B, uh, 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 C, and D. The, the rankings, uh, the hierarchy was based on population of the cities. Uh, so, at, for example, in 1949, you had close to 200 uh, cities uh, in the Class D category. Now, these, were, these were small towns. Uh, if they had a bank, they usually had a baseball team. And uh, the highlights of that town were either when the bank got robbed or the minor league team won the pennant. So those, that's the way it was. Uh, the... Uh, uh, Teams, most of them were independent, uh, particularly on the lower level. Uh, over time, uh, more of them became affiliated with big league clubs. So they were true hometown teams. They were uh, the heroes in these towns uh, were the players for these teams. They may follow the Yankees or the Phillies or the Athletics, but uh, in terms of their hometown, that was the guys that they latched onto. And then, of course, they went on up into the system. Uh, they followed them, and uh, they became uh, uh, identif- uh, started to identify with those players. So 
that was the beauty of minor league baseball. I remember players coming through L.A. like Gene Baker, who was an outstanding uh, black uh, shortstop when he played for the Angels. And when he got to the Cubs, he was part of the Ernie Banks-Gene Baker double play combination, the first double play combination. Well, I first saw Gene Baker in the Coast League, and I was forever endeared to Gene Baker. And the same thing with Steve Belkel. He had been in the big leagues, and when he came to L.A., I thought he was the next Babe Ruth. So obviously I adopted him. And, and, you know, you talk about how important it was at that time, up until 1953, there was only major league teams in 11 cities. There was no team west of St. Louis. So baseball being the national pastime, that was more for the minors as opposed to the majors. I saw you say that pro baseball left the small towns. The small towns didn't leave baseball. The passion is still there. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. that? Well, uh, when I uh, launched this book in May, the first places I went were the small towns. Uh, went to Roswell and Artesia in New Mexico. And I did that because one of the players featured in the book, Tom Jordan, was 99 years old and wanted to do a couple book signings with him. By the way, Tom died uh, this past Monday, 10 days shy of 100. But I wanted to go there to launch the book. I went over to La Mesa, Texas, which is featured in the book, as well as Big Spring, Texas, uh, which uh, pioneered really the Cubans in baseball uh, in uh, the lower minors. They were known as the Yankees, the lower minors, in large part because of all the Cuban players they had on that team. So uh, going to these towns and uh, doing the book signings uh, when the book first came out in May reminded me that uh, the term national pastime really applied to the small towns. And I was reminded again of the passion uh, the people who came for the book signings in Artesia, a little town of 8,000 people in New Mexico. 65 people showed up to performing arts theater for the book signing. That's amazing. 65 people. And I, the passion that these people had, uh, even though they haven't had a minor league team in years, the passion they still have for baseball was there. And that's why I say uh, professional baseball left these small towns. The small towns did not turn their back on pro baseball. You know, um, Kalen, we often talk about uh, minor league baseball and how it's it's not just a feeder system, obviously, for the major leagues, but it's as far as talent goes, but also as far as emotion goes and, and investment in the team. People who follow the minor leagues are more invested in those players. They're proud when they see those players from their towns move up and, and make it to the major leagues and have their debut in the show. Um, have you noticed that as well? Yes. In particular, uh, what's replaced pro baseball in some of these towns, for example, Roswell has a team now. They're called the Roswell Invaders. And they play in the Pecos League, which is a independent league. It's a semi-pro team. Uh, they play at uh, uh, what was at one time Fairgrounds Park, where Joe Bauman uh, played for Roswell when he broke the home run record in 1954. He had 72. It's now called Joe Bauman Stadium. I attended a game uh, uh, while I was in Roswell there this summer, and while the crowds weren't big, they were enthusiastic. They were there. Uh, uh, you know, that was their team. Uh, the Invaders wore alien green uniforms. Of course, Roswell combining their history of Joe Bauman's uh, uh, hitting all those home runs with UFOs. Uh, there's a team uh, that Tom Jordan played for in Alpine, Texas, a great baseball town. It's never had a team in pro ball. They still have a ballpark that was built in 19. 19- 46 called Coconut Field, and at one time called by Sports Illustrated as the most beautiful ballpark in America. Coconut Field is still there, and the Alpine Cowboys are the semi-pro team, and they won the title this year in the Pecos League. So some of these uh, small towns now have 
these uh, independent league teams, and they're very supportive of those teams. And it's it's a throwback, really, uh, these leagues to that era. And I'm fascinated by it. You, you mentioned right. well, you 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 just brought up a guy that we wanted to talk about, which was Joe Bauman, who was considered the home run king of of, of the minor leagues. You tell a story in the book about. Um, there was a tradition of picking the fences. Can you explain what Joe Bauman and the fans did? Yes. Uh, in West Texas and eastern New Mexico, there was a tradition right after the war. Uh, there was quite a bit of prosperity in that part of the country. Uh, all the rationing was gone, so you could uh, use your car as never before. You could buy things you couldn't buy for years during the war. So there was this money fans had available. And uh, in Amarillo, where they had pretty good ball teams after the war, uh, the fans would go out, and Joe Bauman was one of the players on the 46 team. And when Joe would hit uh, 48 home runs, which led the minors that year, uh, they would stick money through the fence. You have one, five, ten dollar bills. That tradition was called uh, picking the fences. Uh, uh, some some of the players referred to the money as lettuce, so they would harvest the lettuce. Uh, Joe, um, because he hit so many home runs, he on four uh, different years he led the minors in home runs. In 1954, when he hit three home runs in the last day of the season to give him uh, 70, the record of 72, he picked the fence that day for $800. That's the equivalent of $8,000 today. So many of your sluggers at that time preferred to play in the minors because the home runs, picking the fences, was a great extra source of income. And Joe Bauman is a, a good example because, you know, I had seen the salaries were only five to 7000 He didn't step foot into a major league park, not because he wasn't good enough, it seemed like you said, but because he had a Texaco service station and pumped gas where he made more money. <laughs> yes, he, he the first service station he had, it was a Texaco station on Route 66 in Elk City, Oklahoma. He left pro or he left organized baseball after the 48 season because the Boston Braves tried to cut his salary by $200 a month, and he told them, I can make more money selling shoestrings on the street in Oklahoma City. So he left organized baseball, signed with a semi-pro team in Elk City. They paid him as well as anybody was going to pay him at that time in the minors. Uh, they also helped him get this Texaco station. He did quite well with it. And his stipulation when he came back to uh, organized baseball was he wanted to own a service station. He uh, first went to Artesia. It was too small a town to support a Texaco station. So after hitting 50-plus home runs in his, each of his two seasons in Artesia, he moved uh, 40 miles north up the road to Roswell, where he had a Texaco service station on the highway between Roswell and Redosa, which has a racetrack. So he did well there. Uh, Joe, uh, like I said, he liked to pump gas during the day and pump balls over the fence at night. That's, that's amazing. You, you, there was also another guy who was on his team uh, in Amarillo, uh, Bob Roundtrip Cruz. Uh, I heard he had some heartbreak. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Bob Cruz tied what was then the all-time record of 69. He did that in 1948. He actually had been uh, cheated out of an, um, a home run earlier that year by an umpire named Al uh, Sicori, who went on to umpire in the majors. But uh, it I'm cost- sure he's glad that you're pointing this out. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, what it cost, uh, it not only cost Bob uh, the, the record to be the first one to hit 70, but going into the last day of the season, they had a doubleheader, and the folks from Wheaties had told uh, Bob Cruz and his wife that he, if he hit the 70th home run, if he got the record, 
He was going to be on the uh, the front of Wheaties boxes. Well, guess what? He didn't hit the 70th, and he was never appeared on the front of a Wheaties box. And he always um, uh, he got a little bitter about that over the years. And even though uh, he uh, set the all-time uh, record of RBIs in a season, 254, which is a record that still stands and will never be broken, he never got over the fact that he didn't get that 70th home run. That was more important to him than the 254 RBIs. But I want to point out one thing. At one time, Bob Cruz had a service station on the same street that Joe Bauman had a service station. And as one Roswell resident pointed out, that's a lot of taters. <laughs> that is a lot of taters right there real close to each other. Anybody who's seen Bull Durham, uh, Nuke Lelouch's character, Steve Dalkowski was the inspiration for that. Tell me a little bit about Whiff or Walk. Many believe. Cal uh, Ripken Sr., for example, is, uh, was very outspoken about Steve Dalkowski. He said he threw harder than anyone. I saw Nolan Ryan from the coaching box, and I know you might think I'm stretching the point, but Ryan didn't compare with Steve. I believe if Steve had pitched in the big leagues, he was capable of striking out 21 batters a game. Now, uh, one season in the minors, Dalkowski struck out 262, and he also walked 262. And that led to the nickname Whiff or Walk Dalkowski. That's he a lot of pages. Yeah, yes. Uh, he, wouldn't, he wasn't on a pitch count. Uh, Dalkowski came close to making it to the majors. Uh, he actually had a top baseball card uh, in 1963. It looked like he was going to make the, the Baltimore Orioles roster, but he got hurt in spring training, and that was the end of that. Uh, Steve also, as hard as he threw, he also drank hard, and that was his undoing because – he eventually um, uh, uh, wound up homeless. Uh, fortunately, some of his uh, ballplayer friends saved him, and uh, he is now living in New Britain, Connecticut, where he went to high school, and he's in a nursing home there. And nobody would have guessed at that time that Steve Dalkowski would uh, today be alive and be 80 years old, but he is, thanks to his friends in baseball. But one of the legends, in fact, when he was still he was 26 years old, when he retired from baseball, and Sporting News referred to him as a living legend. So that's Steve Dalkowski, the character Nuke LaRouche in the movie Bull Durham, was uh, based on uh, Steve Dalkowski. You mentioned his friends, but I wonder if the hot dog vendors were his friends. Well, uh, you that, you touched on a story there. There's a lot of myths <laughs> surrounding Steve Dalkowski. One of the myths is that uh, his first season in Pro Bowl, in fact, it was his second game, he hit a batter in the ear, and it, uh, the story made the rounds that it uh, detached part of the player's ear. That is not true. Uh, certainly, it hurt him, put him in the hospital, but he's, uh, the player is still alive today and still has the entire ear. But a story that is true is one of Dalkowski's fastballs went over the backstop at one ballpark and hit a, a guy who was standing in the concession stand. He hit his hot dog and knocked it out of the hand, out of his hand. Goodness. <laughs> That'll make you pay attention when you're at, when you're at the game. You, you, you talk about somebody who didn't quite have the accuracy. Then, then you've got Ron Necky, who struck out 27 in a nine-inning game for a no-hitter. Can you tell us about him a little bit? Ron is, that a true, is that really a true story, that he, he struck out every batter? Uh, struck out 27 in a nine-inning game. Now, it was a no-hitter, but right. it was not a perfect game. There was an error. There was a pass ball. There was a, uh, a pop foul that was uh, uh, that was dropped by the catcher. Uh, the pass ball, it was on a strikeout, so that uh, there were actually 28 putouts in the game, 
but with the fastball that gave him 27 strikeouts. But nobody's come close to that, nor will in the, will they in the future. This was in Bristol, Virginia, in 1952, uh, in Class D. Nechai was part of the Pittsburgh Pirate farm uh, system. He struck out 27 in a nine-inning game. He was only at Bristol. Uh, he pitched uh, 45 and two-third innings at Bristol, struck out 109. That is more than two per inning. He went from there to Burlington, North Carolina, a Class B team. Uh, again, uh, struck out far more hitters per inning, uh, more than one per inning. That got him up to the majors in, at the end of the 52 season. Joe, <laughs> Joe Graziola was his catcher then. Ron was six foot five, 185 pounds. He had ulcers. He was a, a very uh, nervous, jittery guy. And uh, uh, Graziola didn't know whether Nechai was shaking him off or not because of the ulcers. And secondly, uh, Graziola wasn't too sure Nechai was on the mound. He always yelled out, who hung the uniform on the mound? But uh, Nechai uh, had a 1-6 and six record with the Pirates um, near the end of the 52 season. Uh, Graziola says, uh, interviewed Graziola for the book, and uh, Joe said that if Nechai had not hurt his arm after the 52 season, that he would have been one of the great ones. By the way, Dizzy Dean, uh, a lot of people have trouble with his last name. It's pronounced Nechai, but if you call him Necktie, that's okay, too. He has a license plate that reads Necktie because that is what Dizzy Dean called him after he struck out 27 in a nine-inning game. You know, there there's so many great stories in the book. The last one I wanted to ask about, and I, I encourage everybody to read this book, it's great, is is about Carlos Bernier, who was apparently a guy who just was a magnet for controversy. Can you tell us a little bit about Carlos? Well, he's still a center of controversy today, and he's been dead for a number of years. <laughs> <laughs> the controversy currently is in Pittsburgh on uh, whether he's the first person of color. Now, Carlos was a Puerto Rican. Uh, they, uh, the Pirates considered Kurt Roberts the first black player to have played for them. So uh, there are some who are lobbying for Carlos to get that distinction because Carlos did play for the Pirates prior to Kurt Roberts. But I grew up in Los Angeles, and uh, the media there, uh, and Carlos played for the Hollywood Stars. He was uh, as big a celebrity in Hollywood as any of the stars. In fact, one of his uh, good buddies was George Raft. Uh, you might remember him from the gangster films. Uh, George Raft loved him. Uh, he, Carlos was one of these guys. Uh, he just, as you said, attracted controversy. Uh, he slapped an umpire in the 54th season near the end, and uh, that uh, cost him any return to the major leagues. He had been with the Pirates in 1953. He was very unhappy there, wanted to go back to Hollywood, and that's really where he spent the rest of the time in the Coast League in 57 in Hollywood, and then he went to Salt Lake City, and then he went to Hawaii, finished his career there. While in Salt Lake City, uh, he was considered by a lot of the players a hot dog, and he was playing center field in uh, Salt Lake City. He was playing for Hawaii at the time, and a fan ran out on the field and threw two hot dogs at him and said, here's, this is what you are. Well, Carlos pretty fast, and uh, he was uh, called the human bullet by Roberto Clemente. So the human bullet took after him, <laughs> and uh, he got the fan just about as he was jumping into the stands, and some of the players uh, pulled Carlos back. So the fan survived. But um, that's the typical Carlos Bernier. Wherever he played, whether it was in Hollywood, Salt Lake City, or Hawaii, uh, he was uh, a magnet for controversy. As one umpire said, he was never out. And Carlos <laughs> would tell you the same thing. He was never out. Didn't he also have some... Uh, I'm being generous. 
close calls with umpires? Uh, it's several. Yes. Uh, in addition to slapping that umpire uh, in 1954, which at that time, uh, that could have gotten uh, banned from baseball for life. Um, but, uh, yeah, he had a number of uh, – he was thrown out of, uh, by his own count, roughly 20 games a year. I'd give you an idea. But he was uh, – fans loved him. Uh, his, his philosophy was that the fans come to the ballpark to see action, just like they go to the movies to see action. So Carlos was quite willing to get into a fight or argue with an umpire to give the fans the action that they thought that he thought they deserved when it came to the ballpark. Last one I want to ask you about is the greatest hitter you've never heard of, Al Pinkston, who was a little bit older than he said he was. Al Pinkston is called the greatest hitter you never heard of because in total he had six minor league batting titles, which is tied for most uh, in history. Two of them were in the U.S. and four in Mexico. He is in the Mexican uh, baseball hall of fame uh, he four of those batting titles he won after the age of 40 he shaves nine years off his age so he'd have a better chance of making it to the big leagues the closest he got was spring training with the athletics in 1955 how common was that shaving years off their age for players at that time uh, common uh, most of the black players did it but usually it was two or three years Al kind of took it to the extreme. <laughs> he went a little bit further. He skipped a couple of birthdays. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, as I said, one of the managers accused him of just forgetting a few birthdays. But uh, most people, I remember uh, interviewing his manager that he had in Savannah when he won the batting title there in the Sally League. And that was the year after Henry Aaron won the batting title in the same league. And his manager, Clyde Clutch, was absolutely incredulous that Al Pinkston was younger than he was because – once you uh, put those nine years back on Al, that made him older than Clyde Clutz, the manager. So Clyde would never believe that, but uh, Al had a good laugh at it. How can people learn more or get the book so they can find these stories themselves? I have a website, GalenWhiteBaseball.com. If you go to that uh, website, click on orders, there'll be information there how you can save 30% on the, on the retail price of $36. That'll bring the price down. Twenty-five twenty plus five dollars shipping. That's thirty dollars. That's a good deal. You can also get it on Amazon. The publisher is Roman and Littlefield, and uh, they're offering that special thirty percent discount. But the best way to get that information is to go on GalenWhiteBaseball.com, and Galen is spelled G-A-Y-L-O-N. Well, we really appreciate the time you gave us and all these great stories, helping us learn a little more about the minor leagues and their history. Yeah, it's a passion of mine. Uh, I. I wanted to tell these stories because there's a poem that I like to cite, and that is, death steals everything except our stories. And most of these players are dead. And as I mentioned earlier, Tom Jordan, the oldest living major league ball player, died this past Monday, 10 days shy of his 100th birthday. And it just reinforced this uh, passion I have for telling these players' stories while I can. Well, thank you for telling these stories. You have a great one. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was a fun interview, but now it's time for some baseball. Thanks for joining us this week. Now we hand it over to Greg Caserta and Kirsten Carbach as they take you up to first pitch for the playoff-bound Redding Fightins here on 610 ESPN. We'll be back next week. Enjoy the ballgames.